If you were here last Sunday, you know how special it was in this service that we were able to greet Pastor Nadia from the United Methodist Church in Ulyanovsk. It was back in 1992 that 40 of us from St. Luke's traveled all the way to Ulyanovsk, Russia. From that trip, the church there has started, and then a second church has started, and then a church in Tumen, Siberia has started. It's been a very important part of this family of faith as we've taken seriously reaching out around the world to share God's love. And having Pastor Nadia here was, was very special. You know, whenever we got ready to go to Ulyanovsk back in 1992, we learned that that was the birthplace of Vladimir Lenin. That originally the town was named Simbirsk. And that his name was Vladimir Ulyanovsk. And it's not until he came to power with the Communist Party that he changed his name to Lenin. And so it was the, uh, the forefathers there in the town of Simbirsk decided to change the name of the city after their most famous son. And so they changed the name from Simbirsk to Ulyanovsk in honor of Vladimir Lenin. Well, when we came, as you can imagine, there's lots of statues of Lenin all over Ulyanovsk. And everybody knew all the history and the stories to tell us all about Grandfather Lenin. Well, we learned a lot. When our time was there, it was over, though, we flew to Moscow. And we would have a short period in Moscow to see some of those wonderful historical sites and learn some history. We went to Red Square, and there we saw St. Basil's Cathedral. We were able to go um, outside the Kremlin Wall, and there in Red Square was this granite monument, it looked like, that actually was Lenin's tomb. Lenin's tomb. And we were able to go inside and you went down the steps and you came by and there you saw Lenin lying in a state in his sarcophagus. I mean, there he was. And I got to tell you, he looked pretty good for someone who had been dead 68 years when I saw him. I mean, you walked right on by. Lenin is lying in a state. If you go to, to Moscow today, you can go down the stairs and into Lenin's tomb he is still lying in a state. It's now been 90 years. They say this is his body. People have questions. They said, no, no, this is his body. I can tell you that many Russians, the majority of Russians, feel like they need to finally bury Lenin. But it's Vladimir Putin who says, no, no, we're not burying Lenin. Well, whenever I came back from that trip, I wanted to learn a lot more about Russia. I had developed some wonderful friends and a love for the people there. And so I started reading and trying to watch. And I, I remember when I saw a, a show on the History Channel. And on the History Channel, it was talking about Lenin and then Stalin and Khrushchev. But there were some fascinating things about Lenin that I did not know. I did not know that Lenin loved Beethoven. He loved listening to Beethoven. But then they gave a quote from Lenin's diary. I want to read you what he had to say. I must deprive myself of this thing I enjoy so much. Because whenever I listen to Beethoven, it makes me feel soft. It makes me want to say nice things to people. It makes me want to pat little children on the head. I must deprive myself of listening. I couldn't help but think you and I come together to worship on a Sunday morning so that we grow still to listen, to hear God speak to our hearts. 
And it makes us soft. It makes us want to say nice things to people. It makes us want to pat little children on the head. It makes us want to be compassionate and to show mercy. Jesus said of his disciples, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This morning, I want to continue on with the sermon series, Difference Makers. And I've started with the basic premise that I think every one of us here wants to know that our lives matter. That what we do makes a difference. What we do matters. And it was Jesus, we said, who called his disciples up onto the mountain and he sat down. And he began to teach them how they could be difference makers. How are they going to go out in the world and make a difference? And so we read again this morning as we continue on in the Beatitudes. He sat down, he opened his mouth, and he said to them, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now understand, when Jesus talks about mercy, there's a number of pieces to this. There's the part of mercy that is compassion, that sees someone in need and reaches out to show mercy. There's a sense of kindness in mercy that makes you want to pat little children on the head. There is forgiveness in mercy. When we have done wrong and someone chooses to show mercy. Now all that's tied up in here. And mercy is really important for Jesus and his sense of what it means to be the church. If you read on, we're in chapter 5 in Matthew right now. If you read in chapter 6, I mean in chapter 9, and then over in chapter 12, you'll find two different stories where Jesus is in dialogue with the religious leaders of his day. And the religious leaders of his day are concerned about, are you following the rules? Are you doing all the things we've told you you must do to be right so that you are right with God and God will love you if you do all the right things, follow the rules? And they're looking at who Jesus eats with. He doesn't follow the rules. We look at how he doesn't follow the rules and he works on the Sabbath. And to these religious leaders, two different times, Jesus will say, go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Sacrifice was the most important thing the Jewish people could do, to do it right, follow the rules, and offer the sacrifices in the temple. And Jesus said, the most important thing you can do, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's different. Now, you know, it's interesting. If you look at the three great world religions, if you look at Christianity, Judaism, Islam, you know, with every single one of those, there are fundamental fanatics. People for whom the only important thing is following the rules set out in their holy scriptures. And that's what they want to talk about. Are you following the rules? Are you doing exactly what it says? And if not, then they get very angry with you and want to punish you because you're going to make God angry. But there are voices in every single one of those faith traditions that says, no, no, no. We learned what it meant when Jesus said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You want to be a difference maker? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. That's what I want us to look at this morning. Three things I think we need to see. One, when mercy is offered, relationships can be healed and lives can be changed. 
Without mercy, that doesn't happen. When mercy is shown, when mercy is offered, relationships can be healed. Lives can be changed. This summer, one of the books that I loved reading was a book entitled It's Your Ship by Michael Abershaw. Great book. He was the captain of the USS Benfold. It was a missile destroyer. And this is about when he takes command and he wants to to whip the the, the ship into shape and, and do great things. It's a leadership book, but it's also kind of a book about life. He is a person of faith. But he tells a wonderful story after he had taken over. There came a day when the ship needed to go out on an exercise for a short exercise. And that morning when the ship left, there was one of the sailors, a man named Pete Cross, who was not on the ship. Turned out Pete had been out partying the night before. Partied a little too late. He overslept the next morning. When he got up, he rushed down to the dock, and the ship was gone. The Navy ship doesn't wait for everybody to arrive. It leaves at a certain time. Pete, knowing he'd be listed as AWOL, went to the commander of the base, presented himself, and the commander put him on a helicopter and flew him out to the ship. When he landed... Michael made sure that it was announced over the PA system, Pete Cross is now landing. Report to the captain. (laughs) He didn't want anybody to uh, miss the point. This would be dealt with now. Pete came and stood before him and he said, What happened? I went out and I partied. Stayed out too late. I overslept. I feel horrible. My mistake. I overslept. And Michael said, You know, when I listened to that, I thought... This is good. Somebody's taking responsibility for their actions. He's not trying to make excuses. He's not trying to blame somebody else. I made a mistake. One of the things we don't do so well in our society today is take responsibility for our actions. I made a mistake. What should I do to you? And he quoted him exactly what the Navy handbook said was the maximum penalty to be imposed. And Michael thought about it, and then he said, I'll do half of that. 30 days confined to the ship, 30 days extra duty. We cut your pay in half for the next two months, and we cut your rank. And one of the things that's not in the Navy handbook, you're going to write a letter of apology to all of your shipmates saying, you understand that had something bad happened and we needed you and you weren't at your station, you would have been endangering them all, and you're sorry. And it's like that hadn't occurred to Pete. And he wrote his letter and it went out in a little newsletter there on the ship for each day. And Michael said we watched him closely and he looked like he was trying, that he was trying to do better. Things went well for a little while. He said they came back and docked, began to prepare. They were going to be leaving on a seven-month deployment. And after they'd been back for a while, it was Pete who came to his supervisor and said, I'd like to ask for some vacation. My mother is ill, very ill, and I know we're getting ready to leave for seven months. And if I don't go see her now, I don't know that I'll get to see her ever again. It was denied all the way up the chain. It was denied. According to the Navy handbook, there are no exceptions. You do not get leave or vacation if you're under that kind of penalty. It was no all the way down the line until it came all the way up to Michael. And now he looked at it and he thought, Do I maintain the rules or do I have a little mercy? What is the ship going to think if I let him go? And are people going to think that I'm not serious about discipline? Or am I going to show a little mercy? 
And he called Peter in and he said, I'll give you seven days vacation. Go home and see your mom. And when you come back, we'll tack on the seven days uh, after you come back to the end of your 30 days. And he said when he came back, he was a changed man. When he came back, he said, I'm going to be the best sailor on this ship. You just watch. I'm going to be the best sailor on this ship. You have treated me very fairly. And Michael said, we watched him. And he worked really hard and he did well. After time went by, his enlistment was up and he had to decide whether to re-enlist. And he came to Michael and said, I'll re-enlist if you send me to air traffic control school. Now, air traffic control school was incredibly difficult. 50% of all the people who enrolled would wash out before the course was over. And to get in, you had to have a perfect conduct record and be of a certain rank. And he was no longer of that rank and he certainly didn't have a perfect conduct record. It was Michael who went and asked for an exemption and got it. And so it was that Pete went to the school and he made it. When he graduated, he was number one in his class. Number one. And he came back and he served on the ship in a phenomenal way, finished out his enlistment. When he finally got out of the Navy, he went to work for the defense contractor who created the software so that he could say, let me tell you the shortcomings. We need to work on how to make this better. Well, Michael and Pete stayed in contact occasionally through email. Several years went by. Michael was going to wind up being out in San Diego when he got an email from Pete saying, could we have breakfast? And he said when he got there that morning to have breakfast, he was shocked to see that Pete's father was sitting there. That was the purpose of the breakfast. It was Pete's father who had always wanted to say to Michael, Thank you. You had mercy on my son. And you changed his life. And when Michael left and went away, he said, You know, I've never forgotten the breakfast that morning. It felt so good knowing that I had made a difference. That's what Jesus was saying to the disciples. There's a lot of pain out here, a lot of struggles out here, a lot of hurt out here. But relationships can be healed and lives can be changed if you show mercy. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. But secondly, what we discover is when you offer mercy, then mercy is received. The fundamental principle of life, when you offer mercy, then it's mercy that you receive. You know, another book that, uh, that I was reading on this past year was a, a fascinating book, really, uh, by Desmond Tutu, Made for Goodness. I shared with that with you in some of the sermons. But in the book, Desmond Tutu, written also by his daughter, the two of them, they reflected on the, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, when in South Africa they were working for freedom to get out of apartheid. The government had been so oppressive, and the whole world looked on and said, that's wrong. And the whole world tried to help finally bring democracy to South Africa. Well, one of those who decided to go and to help was a young woman named Amy Beale. Amy Beale was 26 years old. She was from California. She was long, blonde-haired, loved to surf, very smart. She was a Fulbright scholar. 
She went to South Africa because she had a love for the people. She worked at trying to help register voters for the first non-racial election. She worked for women's rights. She worked to help children who were in schools that were just horrible. And so she spent her time working in South Africa, loving the people, and finally her time was up. And one day before she was supposed to come home to the United States, she and some friends were driving through a township and did not realize that day seven black children had been killed by the white police. And the town was rioting. And when they drove into that town and they saw Amy, they dragged her out of the car and beat her and stabbed her. She was finally freed from the mob and taken to the police station where she died. 26 years old, one day before she was supposed to come home. They killed the wrong person. A person who had loved them, who had worked for them, was sacrificing for them, wanted to make a difference. They found the four men who were the main perpetrators. They were tried, convicted, and they were sent to prison. As you know, the election was held. Nelson Mandela would win. After Mandela would win, he wanted to bring the country back together. And so in order to bring the country back together, he established the Truth and Reconciliation Commission so that people who had perpetrated crimes, whether it was the white police or whether it might have been the blacks, you could come and confess what you did and the people who were the victims who had suffered could come and hear you confront each other and if forgiveness was offered, then people were set free. Let's get out the truth and be reconciled. And so these four men applied for amnesty, saying this was not a crime where they were trying to steal something. It wasn't premeditated murder. It was all about politics in the moment. When Amy's parents, Peter and Linda Beale, heard that these four men had applied for amnesty, they came to be a part of the trial. And the four of them came forward and confessed what they did and talked about it. And Peter and Linda supported the amnesty. And so they were freed. They were set free. And Peter and Linda decided then that they wanted to establish a foundation in that township in order to honor Amy's life so that her life stood for something. Her life made a difference. They began raising funds. They began working with the schools to help raise education, to feed the children. It's been going for 20 years now. And more than 2,000 students a day are blessed by this Amy Beale Foundation. Her father died back in 2005. It's just Linda now, and she's still leading the charge for the fundraisers and leading all the work that's still going on in South Africa to this day. And when she goes to work at the foundation, two of the four men who murdered her daughter work there. And I want to read you what she had to say. Every day of the year I wake up and my child is dead. On many days I know that I'm going to get up and be with the people who killed my daughter. And on some days, I have to forgive them all over again. But when I do, I receive the peace and the strength I need to do something that makes a difference. When I offer mercy, I find the peace and the strength I need to do something that makes a difference. When mercy is offered, mercy is received. 
You remember the story Jesus told us about the, the master who had a servant who came to him, owed him a million dollars. And the master said, pay me what you owe. And he said, I, I, please have patience. I don't have it. I will pay you one day. And the master said, oh, forget it. You're forgiven. It's all wiped away. And the servant went down the road and he came in contact with another servant who owed him $1,000. And he said, pay me what you owe. Please have patience with me. I don't have it. I will pay you. No, throw him in jail till he pays me. Well, the servants were distressed and they went back and told their master. And the master called the first servant back before him and said, what are you doing? I forgave you all that you owed me. Should you have not forgiven a fellow servant? Should you have not have had mercy as I have had mercy on you? That's the words Jesus used. He said, throw this bum in jail till he pays the million dollars that he owes to me. Now the meaning of the story is not you have to show mercy in order to earn God's mercy. No, remember, mercy was freely shown in the beginning. God's mercy is freely offered. But when you and I are hard of heart, when you and I are not willing to share that same mercy with others, we keep ourselves from experiencing the mercy that God offers to us. The only way you and I experience that sense of mercy is if our heart is soft, if we are the compassionate, kind, forgiving people. If we offer mercy, then we obtain mercy. And so third, I need God's mercy and you need God's mercy. We know that. We feel that. So if I need it and you need it, then it only makes sense Everybody needs it. And that's why Jesus is asking us as his disciples to take the initiative. That we are the ones who go out in the world and take the initiative to first offer that mercy to others. I need it. You need it. We all need it. It resonates with our soul. So why do we find it so hard to offer mercy to each other? You know, it's interesting right now, I've been following what's going on over in Hong Kong as the students are trying to rally for democracy in Hong Kong. A great struggle going on. You know, it's known as the Umbrella Revolution. Oh, they all have umbrellas to keep off the rain, but also to keep out the tear gas. The umbrellas are known for being soft and yet strong. We will not leave no matter what. But there are many different symbols going on as well for this revolution in Hong Kong. And one of the other symbols is a yellow ribbon. They're tying yellow ribbons all over the railings and public transportation there in Hong Kong. And it's even been reported that some street musicians are playing the song, Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree. Now, I thought that was kind of fascinating and didn't seem to quite mesh, but they kept saying the yellow ribbon is also a symbol of hope and reconciliation and so I decided to come back and do a little research on this, about this transition of a yellow ribbon as a symbol. I mean, we all see the symbol of a yellow ribbon. I mean, yellow ribbons, we know, wind up being tied around trees. When you have a tornado come through Oklahoma, you'll go out there and see yellow ribbons tied on trees. Hope, new beginnings. We all put up yellow ribbons to support our troops when they are far away from home, saying we want you to come home. But it began to say, you know, it goes all the way back to 1991 
1991 in the Persian uh, Gulf War, that it became very popular for people to put up yellow ribbons in the trees in order to say, we're waiting for our troops, our men and women to come home. And we're saying, you're not forgotten. Come home. There is hope. Well, if you go back past that 10 years to 1981, you can find when yellow ribbons really started to show up around America, it was with the Iran, contra, uh, the Iran captive uh, of our embassy. You remember when Iran wound up having their revolution and throwing out the shawl. Ayatollah Khomeini came to power. And when he did, they took over our embassy. 68 Americans were held 444 days. And with the Iran in control, so many people wanted to bring them home. It wasn't until January 1981, after Jimmy Carter left office, they were released and came home. And suddenly, it was like no one said to do this. Yellow ribbons sprang up all over the United States in everybody's home saying, we're waiting for our people to come home. They began trying to trace it down and found that really it started with the wife of one of the, the hostages in Maryland who first put up yellow ribbons to say, I'm waiting for them to come home and I hadn't forgotten. And, and it just kind of caught on like wildfire across our country. And they asked his wife, where did she get the idea? And she said, from the song by Tony Orlando, tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. We'll go back 10 years before that to 1971. In 1971, there was Pete Hamill. And Pete Hamill wrote a story entitled, Going Home. He said it's a story that he had heard, and he knew it was true. The story was about a man who'd gotten in trouble, and he had been convicted and sent to prison. Did not know how long he would be away, but he said to his wife, Don't write me. Don't come see me with the children. It is too embarrassing, too shameful, too painful. I don't want to bring more shame and embarrassment on the family. I am not going to write you. I I just want you to go on with life. If you find someone else with whom to live life, that's okay. You do what you need to do. Well, it turned out within three years, he got parole. And he wrote home to his wife saying, I'm getting out. You have not contacted me. I haven't contacted you, but I wanted you to know I'm getting out. And on a certain day, I'm going to be coming home. And when I come through the town, I I don't know whether you have found someone else to live life with. I don't know where life has gone. I don't know whether you want me back. But if you want me back, I'm going to be on that bus coming through town. And there's an old oak tree outside of town. Go tie a yellow ribbon around that tree. And if I see the ribbon... I'll get off the bus. If I don't see the ribbon, I'll stay on the bus. I know it's my fault. I won't bother you anymore. Well, it turned out on the bus, there were four other college students heading down to Fort Lauderdale for spring break, and they noticed people getting on, getting off, getting on, getting off. This one passenger kept on riding. And so they went over and sat down and started talking to him, and they heard his story. And now they weren't getting too far from his home. And now that he'd shared with them, he started saying, I I can't look. I can't look. And they said, we'll look for you. And as the bus rolled into town and came around the corner, they saw the old oak tree out there. And they said, there isn't a yellow ribbon tied around that tree. There's a hundred yellow ribbons hanging from every branch. 
Well, I got to tell you, it was an amazing run when they finally came out um, with that story. Because in 1972, it was ABC who decided to make it into a movie. James Earl Jones played the part of the convict who got out of prison. He's coming home to see the yellow ribbon tied around the old oak tree. And that went so popular that in 1973, it was Tony, Tony Orlando and Dawn who came out with the very famous song, Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree. Now, I've got to say, when I'm looking out there at you, I know there are some of you who have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> I ran a survey with some of my younger staff this week, and they're all going, Who? What song? Let me read you the words from Tony Orlando's song. I'm coming home, I've done my time. Now I've got to know what is and isn't mine. If you receive my letter telling you I'd soon be free, then you'll know just what to do if you still want me. Tie a yellow ribbon round the old oak tree. It's been three long years, do you still want me? If I don't see a ribbon round the old oak tree, I'll stay on the bus and forget about us. Put the blame on me if I don't see a ribbon round the old oak tree. I wrote and told her, please tie a yellow ribbon round the old oak tree. It has been three long years, and do you still want me? Bus driver, please look for me, because I couldn't bear to see what I might see. I'm really still in prison, and my love, she holds the key. Simple yellow ribbons, what I need to be set free. Now the whole big bus is cheering, and I can't believe I see a hundred yellow ribbons round the old oak tree. Well, they came out with a song. And for those of you who didn't know, it went to number one in the United States. It was number one for four weeks in the USA. And it was number one in Great Britain for four weeks. And then it became number one in Australia. And number one in New Zealand. It became an international hit. It got playtime in Japan and Hong Kong. It literally went around the world touching something, a certain need in the human condition, in our soul, literally around the world. It was played three million times in a four-week period. That's how much radio play they said it got. To put that in perspective, if you took the song and it played once and you started it over and you started it over three million times, that'd be like playing the song for 17 consecutive years. I mean, this was huge. So much so that people were writing into the Library of Congress saying, is this a true story? Is this a true story? They wrote in asking the same question in 1981. And then in 1991, over and over, is this a true story? And the Library of Congress has done its research and they finally came up and said, no. Not a true story. Far as we can tell, didn't happen. What they found was this story kept showing up in our culture in one form or another in all kinds of different pockets around our country ever since the time of the Civil War. That this same kind of story was told over and over again in different ways. They said it seems to be a part of our urban legend, our culture, that here is a story we keep hearing. And I couldn't help but smile and think, this story isn't 150 years old. 
It's 2,000 years old. It was Jesus who told us the story of a prodigal son who took all he had and made a mess out of his life. And when he wanted to come home, thinking he would not be received well, he found a father whose arms were wide open. No, it's a story that's been being told for 2,000 years over and over. We want it to be true. We need it to be true. And Jesus tells us it is true. God's mercy is for you. And if you want to be his disciple, then share that mercy with others. That's how you become a difference maker. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.